0: Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If there's anything on earth that all of us need, it's mercy and grace to help in time of need. The Bible is a book about the awfulness of man's sin. The Bible is a book that deals with the incredible sense of shame that men and women should have regarding sin in their lives. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah 6 and verse 15, the Bible speaks of those who didn't know shame and had lost the ability to blush. There ought to be an incredible sense of shame that accompanies sin. It seems to me that's often missing in our lives. But the Bible is also a story of amazing grace. The Bible's a story of sin, of shame, and of God's amazing grace. Think about Numbers 32 and verse 23. It's a passage that may well be worth our pondering. The Word of God says in Numbers 32, 23, Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. Again in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13, the Word of God says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Our God is faithful and will with every temptation provide a way of escape. Passages I'm sure many of you have heard all your lives like Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Don't think that your sin doesn't have an impact on your relationship with God. I can't think that my sin really doesn't have an impact, a great effect on my relationship with God. Think of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible is a story of the awfulness of your sin and mine. The Bible is a story of the incredible sense of shame that you and I ought to feel on the offense we have caused to our Creator, our Redeemer, and the One who keeps us going. And the Bible is a story of God's amazing grace. Look at 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. John through the Spirit says, These things I write to you that you sin not. But if any man sins, we have an advocate with God, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. This morning, I'd like for you to consider the men in her life with me. The men in her life. The first man out of seven that I'd like for you to think about with me, the men in her life, is a man by the name of Eliam. Eliam. We read about him in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 34. He was one of David's mighty men. He was part of the crack troops of King David. His name is Eliam. He's called Amiel. It's transposing the name when you think about it. Eliam, Amiel. In 1st Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 5, and what his name literally means is God is my kinfolk. So his name literally means that I belong to God. Eliam, that's what his name means. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 3, it is said that Eliam is her father. Eliam, one of David's best fighting men. Here's a second man in her life. His name is Ahithophel. Ahithophel. It is from the same passage in 2 Samuel 23 that we will see that Ahithophel was the father of Eliam. There in verse 34, that would make Ahithophel her grandfather. Stop and think about this with me. Her father was one of the very best soldiers in all of David's army. Her grandfather was one of the most trusted counselors of David. So says 2 Samuel 15 and verse 12. If you go into 2 Samuel 16, it is of Ahithophel that it said, 2 Samuel 16 and verse 23, that his word was esteemed so highly by others that it was as if it were the word of God. Ahithophel is such a great counselor to David that David regards his counsel as, as just tremendously helpful and wise. But what happens is this. Ahithophel sides with David's son, Absalom, when Absalom sought to rebel against his father, David. In 2 Samuel 17, Ahithophel tells Absalom what needs to be done, and he says, give me 12,000 men. Give me 12,000 men to pursue David. And things are not looking good for David right now. Absalom has the benefit now of Ahithophel's counsel. And Ahithophel's counsel is helping Absalom to be this close to the throne of Israel. And Ahithophel says in 2 Samuel chapter 17... If you give me 12,000 men, I will go out while we've got David cornered and I will kill David and you can be the king. We won't kill anybody else, we'll spare everybody else, but David will die. And it sounds good initially to Absalom, but God in His providence caused Absalom to heed the counsel of someone else on that occasion by the name of Hushai. And Hushai says, no, we need to wait. We need to consolidate all of our gains and get everything together. And then after we get everything together, then we'll pounce on him like a bear would. And Absalom could not only see victory, he could taste it and touch it by the time Hushai was finished. What happens is this, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen. In 2 Samuel 17, Ahithophel realizes he wasn't listened to by Absalom he realizes that now they are being defeated. And at the close of Second Samuel 17, Ahithophel commits suicide. A man who was once one of David's most trusted advisors and counselors meets his end Siding with a rebellious son, Absalom, who didn't have the sense to listen to his worldly wisdom. A third man in her life, Uriah. Uriah. 2 Samuel chapter 23 verse 39, what is often overlooked about Uriah is this. He too was one of David's mighty men. There his name is in that list. And I would suggest that in some ways Uriah is the male counterpart of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Because Rahab is a person with a past, all right. But she is a person who puts her trust in God and is known for her faith. In Hebrews chapter 11. Uriah is a Hittite, one of the very nations that were to be destroyed in the promised land. But it seems to me that Uriah is very, very concerned about God and His will in doing what is right and moral in the sight of God. Sometimes I've said about Uriah, he was infuriatingly noble... As it concerned the things that were right. And that ended up causing David no small problem regarding Uriah. Uriah was her husband. Evidently, there was love in the home. In 2 Samuel 11, when Uriah dies, really at the hand of David, the passage says Bathsheba lamented his death. Notice what happens in 2 Samuel 12. 2 Samuel 11, rather. Look at verse 14 and following. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him. That is as murderous as murderous can be. That he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city of Rabbah, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people also fell. And Uriah the Hittite died. David killed Uriah. Just assuredly as he'd used his own hand to do it, how low and how shameful can godly people go? I want you to know, I never cease to be amazed at how low and shamefully and despicably godly people can act. And sometimes that person is me. How about in Numbers 20 when Moses strikes the rock rather than speaks to it? Moses behaved angrily and impatiently and disobediently. And there were consequences to his actions. How about Peter in Matthew chapter 26 verses 69 through 75 when he denies Jesus with cursing with an oath? As much as we love those two characters, it was far from their finest hour. Godly people can behave in terribly ungodly ways. How about Saul, Paul? Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Notice verses 13 through 15. 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 15. Paul says that he had been a blasphemer. That he had spoken against God and the things of God. That he had been a persecutor. Not only did he speak, use his words against God and the people of God and the ways of God, but he persecuted the people of God. And notice this. He says, I was an insolent opponent. In other words, I was hard-headed. And God could not get through to Saul for a while because of his blasphemous nature, his persecuting nature, and his insolent opposition to God and his ways. And then he says... I obtained mercy because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Did Paul have to live with the thoughts of those prior actions? No wonder he says in verse 15, Faithful is the saying and worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now we come to another man in her life. We've looked at Eliam, considered Ahithophel, and briefly looked at Uriah, David. David. Second Samuel 11 and 12 tell us that there's no form of blindness that is more serious, that can be more devastating than to fail to see our sin as God does. There's not any blindness in all the world. You could have been blind from birth. You could have been blinded in some type of horrible accident. It is not anything compared to the blindness that you and I can be guilty of at times concerning our own sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is the prime mover. It's all about Him. And the word sent occurs 12 times in the chapter. Look, if you will, at 2 Samuel 11 verse 6 because it's three times right in that verse, the one verse. David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Why is this going on? Because David is trying to cover up his tracks. Look, if you will, verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him. And he lay with her. Then, verse five The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am with child. David. This is the man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14. Acts 13 and verse 22. If the man after God's own heart can fail to see the greatness of his own sin of adultery and murder and trying to manipulate things so he won't be caught, if a man after God's own heart can do that, I suspect you can and I can too. You can shake your head in the affirmative. There is no blindness so great as the inability to see our sin the way God does. And notice 2 Samuel 11:27. Notice Second Samuel eleven twenty seven. You read this passage; it ought to break our hearts for the times when we have not been ashamed enough over our sin and gone to the answer for our sin, Jesus Christ. What David did displeased the Lord. Friends, God may be quiet, but He's not blind. God may be quiet, He may be silent, but He's not blind. He is not blind to sin and to acting as if that it can be done without shame because it offends Him. It hurts Him. He sees all things. Acts 1.24, 1 John 3.20 And though He may be quiet... Now notice how 2 Samuel 12 begins, verse 1. David's been doing a whole lot of sending for in chapter 11, but in 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sends Nathan. God sends Nathan. When you look at 2 Samuel 12, here's what I'd like for you to remember, and I hope you'll jot it down. God will not allow His beloved people to remain in sin without a sense of any shame. God will not allow His beloved people to remain in sin without a sense of shame. So He sends Nathan to wake up David to help David see things as they are. And Nathan uses a story about a sheep, and that would have reminded David of his time as a shepherd. And you know how the story goes. A guest came by, and a rich individual who had so much took from a poor man his ewe lamb. that was sort of like the family pet, and he served it up for dinner. ...to this guest. Here's what had happened. The text says... ...he sent for Bathsheba and took her. The text says... He went out and got the ewe lamb, and it was devoured, taken. And David is irate. He gets the idea of this, and he says, That man should restore fourfold. That man is really deserving of death, what he's done. How could he be so callous? And now notice, verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity... And then verse 7, Nathan says to David, you are that man. You're that man. What David could see so clearly, he was blind to in his own life. I want you to know God's grace is not only amazing... It's also smart enough to get us to see ourselves when we don't really want to see ourselves as we are. That's where it was with David. But now he sees his sin and he starts to feel the shame that he'd been covering up and suppressing And notice what God does. God goes on, notice this, in verse 7 to say, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And listen to this. And if this were too little... I would have added to you as much more. You know what God is saying? He's saying sin is senseless. Here you are, and I have graciously blessed you the way that I have. And you are blinded by lust. Now, I want to hasten to say some people want to go to 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and put all the blame on Bathsheba. But the first thing I'd like to say, by way of response, is that's not what the Bible does. The Bible puts the blame squarely where the blame belongs on David. On David. Well, she was out there bathing. Guess what? The palace would have been quite obviously at a high point in the city where David could look over and he could keep an eye on things. The problem was David was starting to keep his eye on the wrong thing. (laughs) Here he was, the king of Israel... And yet he has his eye on one of his own mighty men's wife. How despicable. His most trusted counselor's granddaughter. Guys, you'll think different about lust and lust of the eyes when you stop and think about the fact that every time we are guilty of lust of the eyes in an inappropriate sexual way, that's someone's daughter or granddaughter we're talking about. And for those of us that are fathers or grandparents of daughters or little girls, where's the shame? Because the sin is awful. Notice what the passage goes on to do in 2 Samuel 12. God says this by way of accusation. Look at verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And then he goes on to say, here's the crimes. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Go down to verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die that's amazing marvelous grace nevertheless because this deed of this by this deed you have utterly scorned the lord not only did he behave despicably to the word of the lord he behaved scornfully to the Lord. And the Lord says, The child who is to be born to you shall die. The high cost of forgiven sins. We may have to live with the consequences of a sin that's been forgiven. David did. Bathsheba had a little infant boy. And if you're following along, there was Eliam, there was Ahithophel, there was Uriah, there is David. Now there is a little boy born who is unnamed in Scripture. He doesn't even live long enough to be circumcised. He lives seven days. It was normally the eighth day when they would be circumcised showing that they were belonging to God. He's unnamed and uncircumcised, and for about seven days, David prays and David fasts, and some of the very things that had been so absent and missing in action in his life for months before, it seems, are now prevalent, and he's hoping that God may be gracious. There are things that I don't understand in the Bible. Adam, I don't understand why some innocent people along with Uriah died on that day in the battle. I don't understand why they had to die too. I don't understand why a little baby died. Not fully. I understand it was a consequence of David's sin. You and I can be so foolish when it comes to failing to see how blind we can be with regard to our own sin. That brings me to a sixth man in her life, Solomon. After this nameless boy passes, some time goes on and Solomon is born to David and to Bathsheba. David wants Solomon ultimately to become the king, his successor, 1 Kings 1, 5 through 53. In fact, he had to be reminded of it by Bathsheba and Nathan, but he certainly seems to have made that statement that he would be a successor. Now when we think about Solomon, we think about his wisdom and his wealth. We think about David. We think about his heart. But I want you to know that Solomon suffered later in his life from the very sickness and blindness that David was suffering from in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Because 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, says that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It says that... As he grew older, his foreign wives led him into idolatry. Solomon's name means peace and prosperity and health. His name, Jedediah, that he has two names: Jedediah means "beloved of the Lord." And he starts off so well. But as he grows older. He becomes blind and unashamed regarding sin. You can have a heart like David and be as wise as Solomon and be blind. Generally speaking, you can have a heart like David and be as wise as Solomon and be blind. I don't want to be blind... You turn to Matthew 1 and verse 6, and it's in this passage we read of the seventh man in her life. Matthew 1 verse 6 and of David Solomon came. From the wife of Uriah. Remember how the passage and the study began. The Bible is a story of sin, of shame, and of grace. Amazing grace. Where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. Romans 5, 15 through 21. Here's what I want you to think about. In the genealogy of Jesus, reference is made to David and to the wife of Uriah. You see, David's greater son is Jesus. You see, David's greater son has far more wisdom than Solomon. David's greater son has far more wealth to share than Solomon. David's greater son has a better and purer heart than David himself. And it is David's greater son that would provide the forgiveness and the removal of our sins that the Bible speaks so loudly about and we say is good news. Sometimes we have got to stop and ask ourselves are we becoming blind? Are we lacking shame? And if so, we will fail to fully appreciate the grace of God in Jesus. I talked about sin today. But I talk about sin, so you and I can appreciate the salvation that's in Jesus more. Amen for that. That it will be the blood of David's greater son that washes away our sin. Ephesians one seven. Oh, friend. Something has got to be done about our sin. And the answer is not being blind to it. The answer is seeing it for what it is and what it does and turning to David's greater son. In faith, repentance and baptism respond to God's saving grace in the blood of Jesus. Be added to His church. And constantly think about when we do sin, we have an advocate with God, Jesus Christ the righteous, who gave Himself to be a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. I am so glad we can lay our sins on the greater son of David, Jesus. Let us stand and sing.